Chapter 1. A Death in Sin City. Las Vegas, Nevada, October 28, 1988. Las Vegas is like no other place in the world. The city has a worldwide reputation of nonstop partying, gambling, and availability of any kind of sex you can think of, and some that you can't even conjure up, even on mind-bending drugs that were plentiful as popcorn in a movie theater. And when you own the hottest club in town, every night was a party. My name is Johnny Russo, and I own that club, cleverly called Gianni Russo State Street. My name and reputation brought beautiful people into my club. Celebrities mingled with gangsters, politicians, mega-rich titans of industries from all over the world, and occasionally a U.S. president. I was reaping the benefits of my acting career, connections to the mob, international political and religious affiliations, and just plain brass balls. In the world which I traveled, you needed all that, plus glibness and take-no-bullshit personality, coupled with a willingness to take chances. And I took chances, many of which I think back on today and wonder how I have survived to tell the story. I played Carlo Rizzi in the movie The Godfather, Don Corleone's Judas son-in-law, whose betrayal cost the heir apparent to the crime family's oldest boy, Sonny, his life. While that role launched my show business career, I didn't get where I was in this tender age of 29 without having been associated with some of the most powerful people in the world, many legitimate, but most of them not. But on this cool autumn night, I was thinking in the moment, my mind racing, greeting everyone from my $300-plus patrons to trying to focus on everything around me. This was a 10,000-square-foot high-end club with prices to match, with a very cohesive and jovial crowd. But you never know what could happen in the blink of an eye, with booze flowing like water spilling over Hoover Dam and people flying on enough coke and enough drugs to keep Charlie Sheen happy for a month. I'd opened the club in 1981 in a vacant building off the strip mall located between Sahara Hotel and the Hilton International. My intention was to attract my celebrity friends who would in turn draw high rollers, tourists, and politicians looking for their photo ops. The club was a success from the jump. Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Paul Anka, Engelbert Humperdinck, Louis Prima, Wayne Newton, and dons like King and Rickles, and numerous other A-listers, made this club their second home. Stephen Chirippo, who you would later become an actor and star in The Sopranos, was one of my doormen. But you don't attract and keep big names and customers, friends of mine, or not, unless you provide Great food, flash, and class. I also went all out on the decor, both inside and outside. The club was located at the end of a dimly lit street. I had freshly painted dumpsters on the street, which overflowed with what appeared to be mountains of garbage. In reality, bags of stuffed newspapers to give the impression of a depressed, tough neighborhood so that people would get the feeling they were slumming. At the end of that street, where the patrons had to turn the corner to get to the club, all that changed. What assaulted the census was an opulence on steroids. 
A 50-foot red carpet ended at the club's green and white awning entrance. The door was flanked with two mirrored polished brass plaques with the name in flaring cursive writing announcing their arrival at Gianni Russo State Street. Patrons were greeted by doormen in formal wear. When they were admitted after knocking on a door and perused by a blinking eye through a peephole, customers loved the decadence of it all. Once inside, a small army of best-looking men and women in Vegas greeted them. I hired only the beautiful people, all required to wear tuxedos. Although the women accessorized with black stockings under tight-fitting shorts and revealing crisp white shirts, topped off with bow ties. Eighty-six women worked in shifts, serving food, drinks, while the men tended bar and did any required heavy lifting. Every woman entering my club got a long stem rose from me personally, which set the mood for what was to come. An evening of fine dining, great music, enough people watching to cause a bad case of whiplash. Nothing much impressed me anymore, having been around the block more than once, but every day I marveled at the sheer energy of the club. The electricity in the air, the customers were trying to outdress one another, as if to say, look at me, I'm sharp, rich, young, ready to party. I was a tough New York kid with little formal education and no prospects for a future. I was successful and loving every minute of it. I heard a commotion before I knew what was causing it. Gales of laughter, shouts aroused from the room in greetings, boisterous applause from the piano player. These were the norm. But this was the sound of a collective sucking in of air, coupled with gasps and high-pitched screams. I pushed through the crowd to a booth at the back end of the main dining room. A group of customers were standing there frozen, staring at a small woman, well-dressed, who sat in a booth with her hands to her face, crying hysterical as she tried to staunch a current of blood flowing through her fingers. A male figure hovered over her. I grabbed the guy by the shoulder and spun him around. He appeared to be a Hispanic, about 30, maybe five foot six. He was thin and well-dressed in a suit and a tie. I recognized him and the woman as the couple who had arrived at the club less than a half hour ago. The red rose that I presented to the lady now lay on the table, drenched with a different shade of red. She had been slashed on the face and had suffered severe, deep wounds around her left eye. There was no uniformity to the cuts as would have been evident if made with a knife. She appeared to have gotten jabbed a few times with cut glass. Hey, motherfucker, get your hands off me. The man hollered, his eyes widened with fury as I shoved them away from the woman. What happened to you, I asked gently as I pried a hand away from her face and replaced it with a linen napkin. I got wailing sobs in response. The crowd began to retreat backwards as the sounds of sirens emerged in the distance. Someone had called the cops, and I assumed an ambulance. I grabbed the woman's date by the lapel. Get the fuck out of here. Now. I gave him a shove, and he banged into the table. I can handle the police. I knew every cop on the force. But a bloody brawl 
and a license premise was a quick way to lose that license. My guy bounced off the table and went for the woman. She's coming with me, man. She's not going any fucking where, shithead, okay? She needs medical attention, I told him. I had one eye on him and the other on his date. I didn't see the weapon, which turned out to be a broken champagne bottle that this dickhead still had in his hand, held down alongside his leg and hidden from my view. He yelled something unintelligible. In a nanosecond, he brought the jagged bottle up and slashed my face. I was quick enough to tilt my head backwards. He caught me on the chin with a sweeping motion that would later take 84 stitches to close. Customers began to take off for exits. I felt no immediate pain but realized I was cut with an ocean of blood erupting from my wound. Edged weapon wounds on thin skin over bone bleed profusely, and he had gotten me square on the bone. Blood was everywhere. My custom-made Natwise Sea Island shirt was covered in blood, with enough left over to splatter on my new Brioni suit. I was enraged. I waited six months for this shirt. I'd been hurt badly in the past by professionals. I could handle that. But fuck with my wardrobe and you got a problem. I swerved back to get fighting room as Bottle Man made another lunge at me, yelling, fuck you. I was armed with two gold-plated five-shot custom-made twenty-five caliber revolvers in my pocket of my vest. I was duly licensed by the state of Nevada to carry them. He slashed at me and missed. I drew one of my guns and fired a shot into his forehead. He stood there in amazement as he brushed at his face as if swatting a mosquito. This guy was shot between the eyes and he wasn't reacting. In fact, it pissed him off. I figured he had to be coked up and not feeling any pain. I made a quick mental note to get a bigger caliber gun. He came at me again. I parried to the right to avoid the bottle while putting another round in his head and three more in his chest. He went down like a dump load of wet laundry, lying very still and very dead. My heart was pumping like an air hammer as a platoon of cops came charging into the club. I was covered in blood and had a dead guy at my feet. That was not the way I planned my evening. The cops were great, professional, accommodating. I had a great working relationship with the LVPD. Over the years, I took good care of them. They ate and drank well in my club and never got a check, which was probably the reason I was being interviewed in my office instead of cuffed to a bed in some emergency room while they sorted out the particulars of the shooting. I was being questioned by a captain named Coots, while the morgue attendants dealt with the dead guy and the detectives interviewed witnesses. Coots and I went back many years. So, Johnny, I assume you shot this guy after he caught you, right? Coots was a big guy who was 20 years on the job, and he knew what question to ask me so I wouldn't incriminate myself. I was holding a towel around my wound to stop the bleeding. I didn't want to go to the hospital until I got the preliminaries out of the way. Shooting? What shooting? I deadpanned. Coots mumbled something about me being an asshole and read me my rights, which was standard operating procedures just to cover his ass, should it turned out to be I was the aggressor rather than the victim. Yeah, of course, I said. 
Fucking jerk off caught up his girlfriend like she was a watermelon. How's she doing, by the way? Mr. I by a millimeter, luckily. What started the fight? Who the fuck knows? I wasn't invited till later. Well, you killed a guy and we gotta go through the motions. No one's disputing it was a good shooting, but the law is the law. We went back and forth for a while and he took notes. And in an hour, I was at Sunrise Hospital being stitched up by Dr. Elias Goneman, who was also known as Dr. Feelgood, the late Elvis Presley's personal physician, the man to see for anything that ails you. The next day, several friends suggested I get good legal representation, should some zealous DA decide to make an example of me and charge me with a crime. Attorney Robert Shapiro's name came up several times. I decided to go see him just to have him handy should I require his services. I made an appointment for the following morning, and after closing the club at 6 a.m., I flew to Los Angeles to meet the lawyer who would one day represent O.J. Simpson in his infamous double murder case. I was beyond exhausted when I arrived at Shapiro's law firm. Shapiro was on the phone when I was ushered into his office. He motioned for me to sit down and raised a finger, which I assumed to mean he would be with me in a minute, not the half hour I spent listening to him gab with someone who apparently meant more to him than I did. Finally, I couldn't take the asshole's rudeness anymore. I got up, leaned across the desk, grabbed the phone from his hand, and hung it up. He looked like the jury just told him O.J. was not guilty, Eyes widen, registering an expression of utter disbelief. Listen, you jerk-off, I said. No one treats me like you just did. I had an appointment. I'm watching you talk on the phone. Go fuck yourself, okay? Have a nice day. I left L.A., determined to take care of my own problems. I took it easy at home for the next few days, feeling absolutely no remorse about the shooting. This hadn't been my first shooting incident, and it wouldn't be my last. It was a righteous homicide, in that I had been defending not only myself, but anyone else in the club who might have become a victim of future slashings. Captain Coots called me and said that while I had nothing to worry about, legally, I still may have a problem. I said, what kind of problem? The guy you ice, Lorenzo Morales, was in town to conduct business. I didn't like where this was going. What kind of business? Cocaine business. Flew in from Colombia last week to set up a supply chain for his good friend, Pablo Escobar. Fuck me. My advice to you, Johnny, is to get this shit strained out before you get a visit. Said Rex Bell, the district attorney of Las Vegas, who was my neighbor and a good friend. We were sitting in my living room, sipping drinks a week after the shooting. My office will go through the motions with the grand jury, but you've got to address your own safety. Pablo Escobar, for those of you who live in a cloistered convent, was the mass murder and cocaine overlord of the Colombian Medellin cartel, biggest importers of cocaine to the United States in the world. I just killed his highly placed emissary in his business, and common sense would dictate that he may be pissed off. When Colombian drug dealers seek revenge, they do it in a big way, to make a point. Before they kill the intended target, they kill the target's family, 
his friends, his neighbors, even his friggin' pets. Then when it's the target's turn, he goes out in the most violent manner, usually tortured and left to be discovered in a public place. Strained out how? Rex shrugged. You know any Colombians in the trade? I thought about it. While I didn't know anyone personally in the cartel, I knew people who knew connected people in Colombia. I didn't think I had a problem I couldn't handle. I had very close friends in organized crime, Italians, not Colombians, but I figured I was safe. After all, I was defending myself when I shot this asshole. The mob I knew had a sense of honor, and I had shot one of their own. I had gotten a pass because I wasn't the aggressor, and the dead guy was in the wrong. He cut up a defenseless woman. I figured that all the gangsters had a secret handshake, and the incident would die on the vine. I shared this notion with Rex. Hey, I bow to your superior knowledge in this area, he said. After draining his glass, he got up to leave. If they send you some kind of a message, let me know. I got a message, all right. It wasn't very subtle. I lived in a beautiful home on La Paloma Avenue in an upscale section of Las Vegas. Cops and private security patrols cruised the area nonstop. It was to my great surprise when I arrived home a few days later and found a message in the middle of my living room floor. A four-foot circle of blood surrounded by three bowls filled with dead chickens and salamanders with needles through their heads greeted me. In the center of the circle were pictures, one of me and another my daughter, Carmen. These weren't family snapshots taken off the mantle. They were surveillance pictures taken with a telescopic lens. As shocked as I was at what I was looking at, my first thought was, whoever did this had to be Houdini to get past my security system and locks. The house was locked up tight in a crab's ass, which is waterproof. To this day, it's a mystery to me how anyone penetrated my high-tech security setup without leaving a trace. I was upset, not so much for me, but for the safety of my daughter. I called Captain Coots, who was at my home within minutes. He stared at the artwork on the floor and scratched his head. What the fuck is it? You're supposed to tell me. It's why you're here, I said. Let me make a call. He summoned an anthropology professor from the University of North Las Vegas, who knew exactly what it was as soon as she arrived. What you have here, she said, is a Colombian death warning. You have enemies in Colombia? Yeah, you may say that, I said. Coots rolls his eyes. Now my family's involved. I wouldn't trust my daughter's safety to deal between Italians and Colombians. Even if I could arrange it, it might not work. I needed to handle this problem personally. While I had no contacts in the Medellin cartel, I knew people who probably did. John Gotti had assumed command of the Gambino crime family with the demise of the family boss, Paul Big Ball Castellano, whose life came to an abrupt halt after he and the driver, Tommy Bellotti, were gunned down in front of Spark Steakhouse in Midtown Manhattan on December 16th. 1985. Not many in the family liked Big Paul. He was an elitist, greedy boss, 
Among his most ardent detractors was John Gotti, a Gabino captain of a Queen's crew who had Big Paul killed despite the murder not being sanctioned by the commission, the governing body of the mafia, which had to give the go-ahead when a boss was going to be whacked. John had declared himself the new boss of the Gambinos before Big Paul hit the ground. Gotti, now three years into his reign, wasn't that popular among the rank and file either. I wasn't a big fan because he was too full of himself and enjoyed getting dogged by the media whenever he was out and about hitting the night spots in Manhattan, which was often. Gotti loved the spotlight and never truly got the message that the Mafia was a secret organization. His big mouth eventually refined him as a permanent guest of the feds in the United States Penitentiary in Marion, Illinois. The FBI had a big-time hard-on for this guy and made it a mission to see him behind bars. He was no great fan of mine either. While I wasn't a made guy, I did command respect from the wise guys, mainly because I was a man of my word and had included them in many of my money-making enterprises and knew when to keep my mouth shut, which was always. I had always liked my independence and didn't want to be owned by a family. And being made was my idea of being a slave in a nice suit. John was, however, the boss of the largest mafia family in the country, and as such had connections with other criminal entities all over the world. It was with this knowledge I grudgingly sought him out for help to get the Colombian target off my family's back. I would do anything to protect my daughter, even if it meant seeking an audience with John Gotti. To see a man of Gotti's stature, you went to see him. He didn't come to you. His seat of power was at the Ravenite Social Club, located at 247 Mulberry Street, in the heart of Manhattan's Little Italy. John held court there, enjoying basking in his admiration real or imagined, of his minions a few nights a week. I arranged to sit down with Gotti over the phone through Joe, the German Watts, a Gambino enforcer and rabid loyalist. I took a flight to LaGuardia Airport, planning to arrive early at the Ravenite as to show respect to Gotti, which he demanded. Gotti once famously had a guy murdered because he chose not to comply with the summons from Gotti to meet him at the Ravenite. I figured if I got stuck in traffic, I might as well shoot myself. First and foremost was my daughter's safety. If it took talking to Gotti with the respect I didn't think he deserved, I'd do it. I took a taxi within two blocks of the Ravenite and hoofed it over the rest of the way seeking to be as low-profile as I could, a difficult task, given Gotti's notoriety. Before I entered the club, I waved to the FBI agents in a tenement across the street, whose job was to record comings and goings of everything Gotti. I didn't give a damn if they saw me. The only thing they could accuse me of is having a lousy taste in friends. I knocked, and some goon let me in. The Ravenite Social Club was nothing like Gianni Russo State Street. That's for damn sure. Gotti was in the back room of the club, which looked like it had been decorated by Stevie Wonder. Nothing matched. He was seated in a red plastic chair at a Formica table, a glass of wine close by. Joe Watts, forever the devotee, 
was standing behind the boss with his arm crossed over his chest. Watts would eventually serve heavy prison time for not flipping on Gotti when the Gambino boss was being betrayed to the feds by his underboss and others. Look up the word gangster in the dictionary and you should see a picture of Joe Watts. He believed in the mafia, its history, and its blood oath. Always elegantly attired, Watts would be the one who would teach Gotti how to dress when he became the media darling. Prior to that, Gotti wore sweatsuits most of the time and didn't know Brioni from Bologna. Since then, Gotti has always dressed elegantly. His suits were top-notch, as were his shirts and shoes, always immaculately coiffed. His silver hair neat and in place, he looked like an executive, which I suppose he was, in a matter of speaking. Gotti gave me a condescending smile, and we did the usual cheek kissing. Gotti nodded towards the chair, and I sat. So, he said with a mirthless smile, you're a fucking killer now, huh? He might have looked elegant on the outside, but as soon as he opened his mouth, you knew who you were dealing with. Basically, a degenerate gambler whose command of the language was no better than or worse than the soldiers who worked for him. A running joke was whatever Gotti bet on. You do the opposite. I had just walked into the room and he was busting my balls already. Because of my role in The Godfather, the shooting in my club made the TV show Entertainment Tonight. Getting publicity was not something Gotti liked for anyone other than himself. Gotti was a loudmouth drunk. I recall once Frank Sinatra was performing at Carnegie Hall. His son Frank Jr. was appearing at the same time at the Tavern on the Green in Central Park. Jr. was no senior, but he had a decent voice and put on a good show. On the night of question, Frank gave me a pile of tickets to see his son's act. For reasons I still can't figure out, I invited a few Gambinos. So as not to incur the raft of Gotti, I invited him too. If Gotti felt slighted, he would take out his anger the best way he knew how. He was to kill the offender. So rather than deal with that, he became part of our entourage. In between songs, Frank Jr. would recount stories about his dad, which lent a homey nostalgic slant to his act. Truth be told, most people came to see Jr. because of the stories he told about his dad. Frank Jr. would refer to his father as Frank. He always done that in his act. And no one gave a damn, except John Gotti. The more he drank, the meaner Gotti would get. He was nasty, loudmouth drunk. On this particular night, Gotti took exception to Frank Jr. calling his father by his first name and letting everyone know it. Hey, Gotti yelled from the audience, he's your father. Have some respect. There were about 200 people in the audience, and when Gotti bellowed his disapproval, everyone stopped, including Junior's act. Junior laughed it off, dropping the patter he went into the song. When he was finished, he started again with Frank this and Frank that. I don't know where he thought Gotti had gone, but now the Queen's capo was pissed and felt disrespected. What are you, some kind of fucking jerk, Gotti shouted. I'm sitting right here, you fucking mook. Call your father dad, or I'll come up there and break your fucking legs. 
This time, Judy got the message. He went right into a song, which he dedicated to my father. All was peaceful from the rest of the set, but this is the type of person God he was. He had a big mouth, and when he was oiled up, he wasn't shy about using it. Now in the Ravenite, I got down to my dilemma, laying it all out while Gotti listened. In the end, he said he had set up the connection in Colombia, but the rest was up to me. While there had always been tension between us, maybe one of the reasons he helped me was because I was highly respected by people he respected. He came through for me. Or perhaps he was setting me up to get me murdered and be out of his way once and for all. I was going to have a contact in the Bogota. What reception I was going to get was another matter. I can't say I was concerned, but I had to face Escobar. There was no other way to go. We'll continue my journey to Colombia to get the cartel off my back a little later in my story. As for the present, it's better for you to know who I am and how factors I had no control over led me down the path that was littered with gangsters.